I'm Mark Lanier. Those of you who I uh, don't know, uh, uh, thank you for being in our class today. I see we've got some holiday new visitors, and we're always delighted to have some new visitors. And we've got our familiar faces as well. So welcome. We've been looking at Advent, which is the four Sundays before Christmas in the church calendar. And I thought uh, I would snazz up my PowerPoint because it's the last one for the year. Hello, Dr. Sherry. I might get you up here to sing today. You got your voice working? Uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, I keep threatening her, that with her, and, and, and it's caused her to decrease her attendance in class because she's like, I am not going to know. She would get up here and sing in a heartbeat, and we'd all be blessed. Um, but I decided to snazzy up my PowerPoint. Are you all ready? I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> Behind the curtain is Advent lesson number four. Advent, as we discussed each week, comes from the Latin adventus, which means uh, arrival. And it is a time where the church calendar celebrates the arrival of Jesus and, and does so in three different focuses. And each of our lessons has focused on all three aspects of this. It celebrates the arrival of Christ in Bethlehem, the arrival of Christ in our lives, and his arrival when he comes again, because we look forward to that. In fact, one of the Christmas hymns we sing is actually pinned about the second coming of Jesus. Does anybody know which one it is? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That's actually about the second coming, not the first. Now, we get Sherry up here to sing it to y'all. But, <laughs> well, I better not. All right, so that's what we've done. Now, today, I'm going to look at this with three different focuses out of our Advent passage. And so, uh, by the way, you do not know how long it took me to figure out how to do this on PowerPoint. So we're just going to pause, and we're going to appreciate something that's about to happen. We're going to do three different things. First, we're going to look at life's curveballs. Second... You might think, well, that's not too hard. Oh, yes, that is. Until you learn just the little secret to it. The second thing we're going to look at is our testimony about these things. And then the third thing we're going to look at today um, is not life's curveballs. And I don't know why that's on there, but it's about our Lord. So please excuse my typo. See, pride comes before a fall. And I was so proud of that era that I totally muffed it right here. But so it goes. Let's start with the first one, life's curveballs. Here's my question for you. Are you a control freak? And if not, might you know any control freaks? Um, I am, to some degree, a control freak. I, I, I'm, here are symptoms uh, uh, that help you diagnose a control freak. Number one. Do you like to be the one driving the car as opposed to a passenger? Yeah, I, I, I mean, okay. Number two, are you or have you ever been a head football coach? <laughs> or a trial lawyer? <laughs> number three, 
um, uh, do, do, do you get frustrated when life is not what you want it to be? Now, that doesn't mean that you're a control freak, but it's certainly one of the symptoms of being a control freak. You'd need a differential diagnosis. It might mean something else, but, but it's one of the symptoms of being a control freak. And, and it's this uneasiness we have when things are out of our control. All right, with that in your brain, let's start. We're going to look at our first beginning of the passage, the Advent passage, Luke 1, 38. Now, to get you in the context of this, Mary is a 12- or 13-year-old girl. She's been told she's, she is betrothed. Under Jewish law, that means that Joseph, in essence, has acquired her as a bride, but the service has not yet been done. They haven't consummated the relationship yet. And so it leaves her as an unwed virgin, but yet she is committed in the sense that she owes marital fidelity to her to be husband once the wedding is made final. So if Mary is found to be uh, sexually unfaithful, even though the marriage isn't final, that would be considered under Jewish law at the time adultery, not fornication, because she's committed. So she's in a committed relationship that's not yet been consummated. And she finds out, 12 or 13-year-old girl finds out that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And this has happened when the angel Gabriel has come to her. Now Luke is giving this account. Help us understand uh, or help us remember. Let us remember. <laughs> um, I'll do the helping here. Let us remember Luke's gospel for a moment. We've got four different Gospels. The first three are synoptic, which comes from a Greek word that means they kind of see the same things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell sort of the same type stories and narratives. They seem to have borrowed from one another. Some scholars think that uh, one might have been written before the other, and, and most scholars these days think Mark was written first, though there are still a few that think otherwise. And, and so you've got this three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I don't think there's much fuss that among those, um, Luke gives information that neither Matthew and Mark does. Now Luke was a physician, and as such, he's got the interests of a physician and the opportunities of a physician. Because in that day, in Jewish culture, a lot of Jewish men would not really even talk to women unless they were women within their household. But Luke's a doctor. He's very at home talking to women. And so you can just imagine Luke is writing this account having researched it and gone and talked to the actual witnesses. And he writes to Theophilus two books, two scrolls, the book of uh, Luke and the book we call Acts. And he says, you know, this is the result of my investigation and all the work I've done. Now, don't you know that the Dr. Luke had some really interesting conversations with Mary, the mother of Jesus? I, you're a doctor. So you're going to sit there and say, okay, 
go through this conception process with me again. Now an angel comes and says, what? And you are pregnant? And you never had any type of relationship? Wow. So Luke uniquely writes about this among even those three synoptic gospels. And he interlaced the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus to Mary with the story of the miraculous conception and birth of John the Baptist. A miracle for a different reason, at the opposite end of the spectrum. It was a miraculous conception for Mary because she had never had sexual intimacy. It was a miraculous conception for Elizabeth because she and her husband were too old to have kids and had never been able to. So you've got these two stories that Luke interweaves together because the children are interwoven. Elizabeth, older cousin, a generation away at least probably from Mary, Elizabeth is going to give birth to John the Baptist who's the prophetic voice that calls Jesus into his active ministry that prepares the way of the Lord as Isaiah 40 says. And then you've got Jesus, whom we all know about probably, or we wouldn't be sitting in church right now. So you've got those stories interrelated here. And Mary says to the angel Gabriel after he comes and gives her the news, he says, she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Now that language... In the Greek, it's over here, hey, doule kuriu. That language is a, a, a doule, is the feminine form, doulos, that's a slave or a servant. Kuriu means the Lord. If you are a slave, whoever you're a slave to at the time, you would call your Lord. So that's a very Greek expression. But it's something more than just a Greek expression. Because it is a well-known Hebraism. The Old Testament speaks of a servant of the Lord over and over and over again. The Hebrew would be Eved Adonai. Um, um, it's um, Eved, just as the, the built off of these uh, three consonants, means the idea of serving or working or toiling but it's a slave, a servant. Now, Adonai is just the polite way of saying the name of God. yod heh vav -Hey, Yahweh. But, but the, the practice is not to pronounce his name, but to just call him Lord. And so, Eved Adonai, servant of the Lord, is Israel at its best. In the Old Testament, Israel at its best was considered a servant of the Lord. Now this might seem a little upside down to you. It might seem at its best Israel should be the Lord. But Israel at its best is called a servant of the Lord. Let me give you some statistics. Now I have not peer-reviewed these statistics. This is my count. So I could be off one or two if I am. Somebody will post it in a note on YouTube or something. But by my count, 
Ebed Adonai is used of Moses 18 times. Over and over and over, more so than anybody else. Moses, who might have been the greatest of Israel. Moses was Eved Adonai, a servant of the Lord. I've got an example up there of Joshua 22.4. The first time it's actually used of Moses is in Deuteronomy. But Joshua 22.4 is helpful because it uses it multiple times. So Joshua 22.4 says, whoops. There we go, 22, verse 4, reads. Uh, now the Lord your God's given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. And this is right on the heels of him talking about Moses, the servant on the Lord, who commanded you. And over and over, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. So Moses is a servant of the Lord, an Evid Adonai. Um, interestingly, in the Septuagint, for you Greek scholars out there, it's not always a doule or a doulos for, for Moses. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it uses the uh, a Greek word pais, or sometimes it uses off therapy or whatever, the word for a, a healer of sorts. Sometimes it uses the same Greek here. It's, it's so different, he, different Greek words in the Septuagint, but this phrase, doule kuriu, evid adonai, Israel at its best. Not just Moses. But you'll see it used twice at least with Joshua. You'll see it used twice with King David in the Psalms. Now frequently it'll be used, the Psalms will speak of David as servant and servant and servant. But to combine those two into one phrase, it's done twice with King David. Seven times it's used of Israel at its best as opposed to Israel at its worst. 2 Kings 9-7 is one that uh, is a good illustration of this. 2 Kings 9-7. This is when Yehu is anointed king of Israel. Let's see. And it says... The instructions are, strike down the house of Ahab, your master, Ahab, bad, bad king, so that I may avenge on Jezebel, wife of Ahab, bad, bad queen, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord, Evid Adonai. So the servants of the Lord were the ones that did not follow Ahab and did not follow the Baals. They were the ones who were loyal and faithful and serving the Lord obediently. Servant of the Lord is not a nasty thing. And we've got to be really careful because part of the blight of Western civilization, uh, and America is, is right there in the thick of it, historically, has been an abuse of humanity in what we label slavery. 
And because of that, there is rightfully a distaste in our mouth when we speak of the idea of slavery. But when we talk about being slaves of the Lord, it's not the same thing. And so don't let our proper distaste from our historical uh, atrocities, don't let that cloud an ability to appreciate the concept when it applies to us and God. Because the idea of slavery for Israel was Israel at its best. That's the best relationship they had. Now, I don't know how many of y'all keep up with the solar system and what's going on. But the Parker Solar Probe just recently entered the sun's atmosphere for the first time. We have shot this probe, and I mean, it's been decades in the planning stages. We're shooting it into the sun. Now, it won't land on the sun. We haven't yet found a metal that will withstand the millions of degrees <laughs> that it would take. What it's doing is it's skirting through the atmosphere, if you will, of the sun. Now, the sun, of course, is the star of our solar system. That's a pun. The sun is the star of our solar system, rightfully deserving of a probe. So here we, we're probing, and, and, and what they're finding are these massive, massive facts out about the sun that we didn't know before. It's brilliant. It's bright. It's incredible. But it doesn't hold a candle to the incredible God we serve. And as bright and as powerful and as burning hot as the sun is, it's an, not even an ice cube compared to the Lord. So for us to be a servant of the Lord and to see that as a good thing is for us to understand a little bit of who God really is. Because we get called into his presence. We are the servants who get to come in before him when we ought to melt faster than our probe that's headed to the sun. So here's my question. How cool is it to be, it's a temperature pun, how cool is it to be a servant of the Lord? It's pretty incredible. Think about how much money is spent in this world on arms. Think about how much money is spent on weaponry. On a national scale, there's a huge underground market where people are buying weapons illegally. We've got massive sanctions levied and being de debated over Iran trying to build nuclear weapons. We've got uh, um, uh, weapons that have been used historically and politically within America to trade for different things. There are a lot of people who keep weapons in their home for self-defense. Weapons can vary from nuclear bombs to a knife. And those are just those kinds of weapons. That doesn't count the weapons of ideas, the weapons of words, the weapons of propaganda. 
And so you look at all of these weapons out there. And I want to tell you something. To the servant of the Lord, no problemo. Look at this passage from Isaiah 54. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Every tongue See, recognizes different kinds of weapons here. This is the heritage of the Eved Adonai. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication comes from God. That's a pretty awesome comment about what it means to be a servant of the Lord. A servant of the Lord is someone, no weapon that is fashioned. There's not a weapon in the world that's going to succeed against the servant of the Lord. There's not a tongue, a word, an argument, an idea, a propaganda point that is going to rise against in judgment, which means that's going to really stick. That's the heritage of the servants of the Lord. If you think for a moment about Paul's armor of God, Paul talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6. And uh, not just uh, the identification of the various pieces, but what he actually says beforehand to put it into context. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is what an Evid Adonai is. They're strong in the strength of His might. Because if we, as we put on the whole armor that's God's, we're able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're, we're wrestling against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have to take up the whole armor of God to be able to withstand in the evil day. And then having done all, stand firm. And then he details what that is in terms of the armor. But if you look at that carefully and you consider what Paul's saying, he's telling us that our struggle is deeper than that of, of nuclear weapons. Our struggle is deeper than that of, of somebody gunning you down in the streets because you cut them off when you were driving. Don't get me wrong. Those weapons exist and those tragedies happen. But in God's plan and God's scheme and God's kingdom, they're not really touching us. Oh, it can remove you from this earthly existence that you've got right now, but it does not touch you eternally in God's presence. It just gets you there quicker. I, this, is, this, is, this is what we've got. This is a fringe benefit of being a servant of the Lord. So I ask you, what are your struggles? What is it you struggle with? Because I go back to what Mary said. I'm the servant of the Lord. She had every reason to be upset. 
She is just told that her life plans, going to marry Joseph, hopefully have a bunch of kids, uh, hopefully uh, uh, keep Sabbath and live a good life. And, and all of those are totally changed if she's pregnant out of wedlock. Every plan and thought that she had radically changed. Under the law, she should be stoned. And she says to the angel Gabriel, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. That means that no tool fashioned against me, no weapon, no gossip, nothing's going to be able to, to stand against me because I'm a servant of the Lord. That means God's responsible for my safety. God's responsible for my plans. God's responsible for what I do. My responsibility is to do what he wants me to. His responsibility is to see that the end is right. That's God's responsibility. So she says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Genoito, let it be. Genoito means let it be. <laughs> Unless you put may in front of it. Paul over and over says, may genoito, may it never be. But let it be. Now, it does not, you do not have to be a child of the 60s to put two and two together here and to think about the album, Let It Be. And Paul McCartney's line, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. And there are a lot of people in Christianity that got really stoked over this. Especially because if you look it up a lot of times, Mother Mary is capitalized both as Mother and Mary. Which makes it sound like Mary, Mother Mary. Mary the mother of Jesus. That's when you capitalize mother. Uh, if it's just your mother's name is Mary, you don't have to do that. It's okay to do it. I think it's acceptable either way. But I mean, this has got people, whoa! Now, Paul McCartney's been interviewed about this, and he wasn't writing it in terms of the Luke gospel story. Uh, what, what he has said is, when I put that in the song, I think a lot of people then thought that it's become kind of a quasi-religious with Mother Mary, Virgin Mary, which is fine by me if that's how you want to take it. But the actual reason was my mom, his mom's name was Mary, and she had died 10 years before he wrote this lyric came to me in a dream and actually said, let it be, which turned out to be great advice. Thanks, Mom. Uh, Paul was trying to figure out his life, and, and it was a pretty intense drug time and other times, and, and uh, uh, he was uh, struggling and went to sleep one night. His mom came to him in a dream, said, let it be. He woke up and thought, that'd be a pretty good song. Went over and plinked it out and wrote the song. But there really is a great idea here, Genoito. I mean, this is what Mary's saying. Let it be to me. Genoito moi, let it be to me. According to your word. Now, if you're reading this in the Greek, look at this. It looks like, see these little dots up at the top after Mary? And you get a dot here after Lord. But then down here you've got a period. 
The original Greek didn't have any punctuation like that. That was added later. The punctuation, the dots up at the top, indicate here probably a, an English semicolon. And the dot down at the bottom is a period, like we have where we put dots down at the bottom. And so it says, and Mary said, semicolon or comma, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, semicolon, let it be to me according to your word, period. And the angel departed from her. Are you familiar with the phrase, drop the mic? That's, that's, that's what, it, it's been lost over the centuries, but that's what originally was in the text. Drop the mic. Maybe. Um, let me tell you what, what I'm speaking of. Gabriel has already appeared. He's already appeared. He's appeared to Zechariah. We've got the story of Elizabeth. And Gabriel always gets the last word until Mary. And when Mary says, let it be, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, Gabriel doesn't get the last word. He's like, drop the mic. Enough said. Let's leave it there. I'm gone. Nothing to, can be added to that. Mary has given it the last word there, and it's just, pfft, drop the mic, walk off stage, performance is over. I love that aspect of this story. The angel departed from her. That was it. So I got news for you. If you're a control freak, it's Advent. And that means that we've got the lesson of Mary teaching us about the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem and her comment of, May, uh, you know, I am a servant of the Lord, Evid Adonai, and then her comment of, let it be, genoito, to me, genoito moi, let it be to me, according to the word of God. And it's like, enough said. Now that's pretty impressive. And you may be saying, well, yeah, but what about me today? Well, Jesus has come into our life. I want to be a servant of the Lord. I want to be Israel at its best. I want to be Evid Adonai. I want to follow what he says. I want to be on his, his, his program. I want to be on his team. I want him to take care of me. I want him to instruct me what to do. I want to do it to the best of my ability. And I want to trust him with the consequences. Because as much as I am a control freak, there's too much that's out of my control. And I got some choices. I can either freak out about it, or I can go crazy trying to control it, or I can get absolutely depressed, or I can escape into some opioid never world, or I can be a servant of the Lord and know that no weapon has ever been formed that's going to deny his purposes in my life. That no tongue has ever been devised or spoken that's going to rob 
what God has planned for me in my life. Doesn't mean it's always going to be fun. Doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. And it certainly doesn't mean it's going to be the way I would write the script. But I'm a servant of the Lord. And I know that he's coming again. And I'm going to do my part, I hope, by his grace and by his power to bring him glory, honor, and praise and to build this kingdom. And that's the lesson I get from that with life's curveballs because life throws us things we don't expect. I really don't think Mary woke up that day thinking that was going to happen. But she had that ready response. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And I like that and I've got that and I'm hanging on to it. Number two, I want to talk for a moment about our testimony. Shorter point, we'll make it through pretty quickly. But here it is. This is continuing. We were at verse 38 before. Verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now Mary's up north in Nazareth. And so we're talking about an 80-mile trip or so, probably, down towards Jerusalem in the hill country. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. He serves at the temple. A lot of priests at that time lived in Jerusalem, but a lot of them lived outside Jerusalem. But that's in the hills. So she makes this 80-mile trek. Now, i got to tell you, first of all, that should stun you. Because she wasn't driving a car. She was 12 or 13. That's not old enough to drive a car. Plus, they hadn't been invented. She's not even riding a bicycle. She's female. Most females in good Jewish homes don't leave the house unless they're with their family. Specifically, the men in the family. They certainly don't leave their community. And they certainly don't make 80-mile trips. Now, maybe she went with someone. Maybe she had her mom go with her. I don't or dad, I guess. But I, we don't have any indication of that. But she went, and she not just went. She went in haste. Spude. She went with haste into the hill country. Um, Spude means to move with purpose, to move with speed, to move with zeal, to really focus on on getting to it. It is the difference between me driving home, thinking about lunch, and me being so hungry that as I'm driving home, I'm looking at the red light and the cars that are stopped, and I'm trying to figure out which lane's going to be quicker pulling away from the red light so I know if I want to be in the left lane or the right lane. I told you I was a control freak. And I'm sitting there trying to make that call because I'm moving with spude. I'm moving with haste, with purpose. Look, look I, I put some passages up here to give you a feel for the word. Second Peter 1.5, great little passage. Uh, first, second, Peter one, five, one, one, five. Here we go. Peter writes, and he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with agape love. This make every effort, spude. Get after it. Focus on it. Get it done. Pay attention. Go, just make that a, a purposeful goal right now. Spude. Look at Jude. Verse 3. Behold, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our sal common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. I was eager, spude. I was focused on it. I, was, I thought it was something. I, I mean, I'm, I'm tuned in. I'm figuring out how to do this. But I found it necessary. It's something I needed to do. I, I, it, it's not just lackadaisical. Romans 12, 11, Paul uses the word in an instructive way. Romans 12, 11. Paul says, Let love be genuine, hate or abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, don't be slothful in zeal, spude. You know, when it comes to, to getting something done and being focused on it, don't be lazy. Get after it. All right, so within that context, with that idea, Mary gets after it. She not only, she goes with haste into the hill country. She's got news to share with her cousin. And she doesn't yet know Elizabeth's pregnant because Elizabeth hadn't told anybody. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth with, with this speed, with this zeal. And as she goes, she comes in and, and, I, and greets Elizabeth. Now, I got to tell you something. Hold on here. Let me move that out of the way. I need to do better at something. I don't know how you are at sharing the great news of what God has done in your life. And sometimes I'm, I'm good at it, I think. I can tell people. I can let them know. But there are some times where I'm really not too good at it. It makes me real uncomfortable. Kind of like, you know, I'd love to tell them, but it just seems awkward. And what, if, what are they going to react? And I just really got spoken to looking at this passage a couple of years ago by Spude, by Mary doing something that's contrary to culture, contrary to her nature, contrary to her upbringing. She makes an 80-mile trip, and she does it with haste because she's got some news to share of what God's doing in her life. I'm like, okay, I got to do better at that. I got to do better at telling people about the Lord. You know, this, um, this, this last trial I was in, uh, I, I was 
in, in candor, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be in Houston. I wanted to be around my family. I didn't want to spend 11 weeks in Cleveland, Ohio. Nothing personal, Cleveland, Ohio, beautiful town. Thriving metropolis on the Cuyahoga River, Lake Erie. Um, I just didn't want to be there. And yet, I was committed to being there. I'd give them, told them I'd do it, and I had to go up there and do it. And I thought, Lord, I kind of had an unwritten deal with you. The unwritten deal was I would commit to doing it as long as you would see that the case settles after I've been there for a couple of days or maybe a week or two, then I can come home. And it wasn't settling. And I'm like, well, why isn't it settling? I come home, I teach my class, I've got time for church, and then I've got to get straight back to the airport to get straight up back to Cleveland to get the witnesses ready for the next day. And I'm still thinking, this is just, I don't want to go. I don't want to be there. I don't want to go. And I go in, I listen to Pastor Jarrett preach. And bless his heart, he speaks right to my brain. And says something like, you know, sometimes God calls us to do things we don't want to do. Don't grumble and complain and whine about it. Just do it. Now, that's my words of what he said, but that's the way it sounded to me when he said it. And I thought, oh, great. Now I not only have to go back, but I can't whine, grumble, and complain about it on the way. And I got up there, and I was talking to my daughter, Rachel, who's up there with me. And I said, told her what had happened. And she says, yeah, she says, it's easy to grumble and complain right now, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And she says, but I guess we're not supposed to. And I said, yeah. And so we just made a decision that we were going to boldly tell everybody we were only up there because God wanted us to be. And anybody who's going to be around us, we're just going to tell them about Jesus. And then every night before we end for the night, we're going to go over a prayer list together and we're going to pray for everybody. We're even praying for the bad guys. That's the lawyers on the other side. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, there's a kind of a liberating freedom when you just decide, hey, I'm going to tell people about God in my life. And you can say, well, that's different. You know, that's, that's her. You know, she had the Holy Spirit, like, put the Christ child in her. So she's carrying Jesus inside. Well, so are we. Jesus says he's in us by faith. So I got to do better. I'm just telling you that. That's my confession for the day. So Elizabeth, here's the greeting of Mary. And the baby, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, can I take a moment and tell you one of the things I love about Scripture is its consistency. I see my nephew Jack is here. Hello, Jack. Jack is a doctor, like Sherry, except he's an, a doctor of the eyes. Now, he went to medical school. 
And he's got some things that specialize in the eye, and he understands it. He's not an internal medicine doctor, but if something's true to an internal medicine doctor, it doesn't suddenly change just because he's looking at the eye. The body's going to work the way the body works, and he'll understand it from the eye, and Sherry will understand it from the kid who's got hoof and mouth disease or whatever it's called. Isn't there something like that? Hand, hoof, and mouth? Hand, foot, and mouth. Uh, okay. <laughs> Clearly not a doctor. Clearly doctors. Okay. But the, the body's not going to automatically, he can't find a, a truth medically in the eye that's totally invalidated by some medical truth in, in foot and mouth and hands or whatever strep throat. So look at these passages. Look first at, well, let's go back. Look first at John 15. This is really cool. John 15, 26 and 27. Jesus is having his last dialogue with his apostles before he, he's arrested and he goes off to the cross. And John 15, 26 and 27, he talks about sending the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit coming. And he says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Now what Jesus is saying is, is that the Holy Spirit has periodically come, but there's going to come a time where he doesn't just come and they see him or exposed to him or he's on one person or another person. He's going to indwell all believers. When the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, he specifically says that he's going to bear witness about Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to testify to Christ along with the apostles, along with us. One reason I should not be so hesitant to share my faith with anyone who would be blessed by hearing it is because that's actually being done as a work of the Holy Spirit. And I can choose to let the Holy Spirit do that or I can choose not to. But I love this. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say in John 16, 14, as he's still talking, he says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me. He'll take what's mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. Well, the Holy Spirit was doing that through Elizabeth. Already the Holy Spirit's doing what Jesus said is the work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to Christ. She comes in. When she comes in, what do we have? The Holy Spirit working through people to testify to Christ. We have the Holy Spirit filling her and exclaiming, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. John the Baptist leaps in her womb. She's filled with the Holy Spirit and testifies about Christ. And that's a marvelous thing. Elizabeth says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my room leaped for joy. This is the baby that was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception, according to the angel Gabriel. So 
Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, with her mouth proclaims Jesus. John the Baptist, inside the womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy at Jesus. I really like that, by the way. I don't know when the last time is you jumped for joy. I'm old enough. I'm trying to figure out the last time I jumped. But we should all leap for joy at the coming of Jesus. Do you know why? Without Jesus, this is our life. Now, I'm not saying, you know, if you let your eyes get adjusted to it, you'll start seeing there's little trees in there. But with Jesus, this is our life. Now, how do you get from one to the other? Only through the cross of Christ. And that's what moves us from darkness into light. That's what gives us a better life, an eternal life, a life as a servant of the Lord. And that's what this Advent season means to mean for us. We should leap for joy. And you say, well, yeah, but she had Jesus. No, we've got Jesus in us. We've got every reason to leap for joy. And then Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant, Evid Adonai. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. She just breaks out into song. I don't know how often you break out into song. But if you're going to, this is something worth singing about. Jesus arrived in Bethlehem. That was worth singing about. He's arrived in my life. That's worth singing about. And he's going to come again. That's worth singing about. Holy is his name. Great and mighty are the works of the Lord. We've got not only life's curveballs, but we've got a testimony to share and it is a testimony about our God. And that's where we bring this home. And his mercy, Mary's still singing. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, remember translation is not math. It's not here's a word and it means this word in English. And we just take one Greek word and turn it into one English word. Translators have to do that. But all of these words have a wide semantic range, a wide range of meaning. And we've got one of them here. It's the word translated mercy. Elios is the word for mercy. But it contains this idea of compassion, of pity. It's a kindness and a concern that is expressed for someone who's in need. And so you'll see it in passages like Luke 10, 29 through 37. That's a story everyone in here ought to know. If you don't know it, you need to read it and you need to get it in your brain. Luke 10, 29 through 37. Let's see, whoops. There we go. Oh, look at what we just did. Is that showing picture in picture? <laughs> Don't know how we did that. Um, but we'll take it. Okay, Luke 10, 29 through 37. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Look, lawyer stood up. That immediately tells you this passage is worth reading. 
and put him to the test. Well, that's a lawyer joke. Teacher, what will I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers this by to love his neighbor as himself. And he says, well, okay, how, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. A priest passed by, doesn't do diddly squat. A Levite passed by, zippo. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Elios. He's the one who showed him, whoops, Elios, mercy. That's what mercy is. It's, it's Elios in the Greek. It's this idea of taking uh, um, an action out of kindness and compassion. Uh, pity, uh, not as strong for me because that makes someone pitiful. I'm not, but, but this uh, a kindness and a concern expressed to someone in need. And, and by the way, this is important stuff. Jesus says in Matthew 9, uses this word, Matthew 9, 13. Jesus says, Um, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire elios. I desire you to have compassion and concern for those in need. Elios, mercy, compassion, pity, kindness expressed for someone in need. That's what God has for those who fear him. From generation to generation. I love this. I need this. This is what I want. The mercy of God. What else? God has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The Hebrew word arm is symbol of, 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 of strength. And strength in action. God's strength in action is to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their minds. Hebrew uh, word heart meant that's where they thought the thinking was, but it's our mind. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. Do we realize what Luke's saying? Luke, through Mary, is saying the gospel story, the story of Advent, the story of Christmas, the story of the incarnation of Jesus now in our lives and the second coming is one that turns this world upside down. I mean, it's little as big and big as little. Alice in Wonderland would be proud. Up is down and down is up. Because God takes the things that are lowly and he has so much value for them that he lifts them up. And those that are arrogant, he brings them down. God takes those who are hungry and he feeds and fills them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be filled. God has mercy on those who need his mercy. And judgment on those who don't. God, we live in a society that's almost the exact opposite. I, look, you want, 
I probably shouldn't say this, and I'm out of time, so I'm not going to say it. That's discretion. But that's who our God is. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. I got an email. I got an email asking me to a private dinner of 10 with someone who, in many people's eyes in this world, is a real, real, real heavy hitter. And yes, you could do that same dinner, I'm sure, if you want to give $125,000. Yeah, that's my reaction. I, th I wrote back and said, that was really a gracious offer. No. I mean, I, I, but, but we live in a culture and a society where some people will pay big bucks to sit down with the powerful. Who will pay big bucks to sit down with the guy under a bridge? God turns this world's system, value system, upside down. God's not looking for the big bucks people to spend time with. God's looking for the sick and the broken and the needy. And that's who he went to. I, yeah, it's, it turns the world upside down. Where are we going to be on that spectrum? It's convicting to me. I hope it is to you. Here's your light for today, and then we'll go to church. Life throws us curveballs. It just does. And, and when it throws us curveballs, we need to be Evid Adonai. We need to be Dulos and Dule of uh, uh, Kuriu. We, we, we need to be servants of the Lord because that's who we are, and then we can tell the world about it in the process because it's great news. It's the news of Christmas. The joy to the world is the Lord who's come. And we don't need to be bashful about that because that's who we are. So let me bless you and uh, we'll be done for today and for this year. Thank you for being so faithful in class this year. I look forward to going with you through next year. We'll be looking at the teachings of Jesus as we start in January. So, Lord, would you please bless everyone in the midst of all of the holiday joy and all of the holiday turmoil with peace. Genoito, let it be to us as it is to, to uh, it should be to your servants. We rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, y'all. Thank you, Lord.